He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on me is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Open the Word of God this morning to John chapter 6. Verse 14. John chapter 6, verse 14. The Word of God addresses every single arena of human thought. Nothing is left to human imagination. That doesn't mean that God tells us everything there is to know about certain arenas of thought. Certainly, if we go to Scriptures to learn advanced teaching on certain technological aspects or scientific aspects discovered only in this century, we would not find it there. But what we do find in Scripture is the foundation, the underlying framework for understanding everything and which should provide the starting point of all human thought. By analogy, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Think through it in your mind. You realize that God separated the light from the darkness and he called the light day and the darkness night. If you go on through the first chapter, you realize that as God created certain things, he named them. Vocabulary is necessary if we're going to control any arena of thought. And God initialized man's vocabulary in that restoration week, that creation week, those six days, as God establishes various aspects of the universe. But then, having created the beasts of the field... He told Adam, he delegated responsibility to Adam, and he said, name all the animals. God started a process, and he lays the framework down, and then within that framework, man, as part of his image-bearing responsibilities, because God is creator, man has certain creative functions that flow from his soul that mirror or reflect who God is as, as the ultimate creator, And so within that framework, Adam begins to name all of the animals. God does not go, go through and give nomenclature for every single thing in the creation. But he initializes it, and within that framework, man develops. The same thing is true in theology. God initializes vocabulary throughout the Scriptures, and we have wonderful words like redemption, propitiation, atonement, reconciliation, sacrifice, uh, words like Messiah, all of these things provide the starting point, and then we build on that. The scriptures address, when I say the scriptures address every arena of human thought, nothing is left out whether you want to have a philosophy of history, a philosophy of science, an economic theory, even a political theory. Your starting point should be what God says about these things. And there's two great chapters, aside from the Mosaic Law, which I think is a foundational 
uh, document for understanding legislation, not that that should be uh, the law of land today, but that when God gave a system of law to a nation, he gave us a model for how legislation ought to be given. And that became a foundation for what we call the Judeo-Christian ethic today. And we look to the Mosaic Law as a model of how government ought to operate and how legislation ought to be conducted. But there's two other chapters in Scripture that give tremendous insight. One is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when God basically warns the Jews that if they want a king, he, like all the other nations, that they're going to suffer and they will lose a certain amount of their freedom and autonomy because once you develop a physical monarchy as opposed to the theocracy they had, then the king's just going to put an obsessive, an oppressive burden of taxation upon the people and you're going to lose freedom. That freedom, true freedom, political freedom, is always somehow in Scripture related to economics. The more the government takes out of your pocket, the less freedom they give you because money is always somehow related to political freedom. Now, the government has the right to tax. Jesus said, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, and under God that which is God's. And God clearly recognizes that human government has the right to tax. But excessive taxation that gets, I think, much beyond about 25% is oppressive and destroys freedom. That's what one of the founding principles of this nation. They understood that the taxation levels, or the level of taxation imposed by the British government, was in that oppressive realm and they were not getting a hearing in Parliament and so that necessitated some political action. Now, all of that is background to John 6 because there are certain things in John 6 that are very important to understanding concepts of freedom and political organization and specifically uh, the masses because you see, uh, unfortunately... Since the Civil War, what we call back home the War of Northern Aggression, (laughs) on a field of battle in Pennsylvania, one of the most famous speeches given by a president of these United States reinterpreted the U.S. Constitution in terms of the Declaration of Independence. And that set this nation on a different course from that envisioned by the Founding Fathers, on a course of democracy as opposed to the course of a republic. And there's a difference. For democracy, if you break it down, demos is the Greek word for the mob, the masses, and krasis is for rule, the word for rule. And so democracy literally means the rule of the mob, the rule of the masses. And the fundamental principle is that the majority rules, the majority is always right. And the underlying assumption in democracy is that the people have the right to generate absolutes from within themselves. The Bible says that only God is the source of absolutes. And a republic operates on the basis of a constitution, a body of law, that dictates and provides the framework for all legislation and all activity, and that is viewed as an absolute, and no one, king, president, legislator, whomever, sports figure, is above 
that body of law, and it is an absolute. And that's the difference between a republic and a democracy. And we have slipped more and more into thinking. In fact, most kids today, when they grow up in school, they're taught that we live in a democracy, and that's true, but it's false. It's true in the sense that that's where we're moving. It's false in the sense that's not the thrust of the Constitution or the understanding of the Founding Fathers. And, of course, that brings into a whole different arena of thought. If you're a thinking believer, you must ask the question, is it ultimately important what the Founding Fathers intended by what they wrote? This is a major philosophical issue today. Is Does the author of a document, does his intent control the interpretation of the document? Now, you may say, and if you're of a certain political stripe in this country, that, that it doesn't really matter what the Founding Fathers meant or thought or intended by the Constitution. What matters is how we want to apply it today. So you've just shifted authority away from the Founding Fathers to yourself and to the individual and the individual person, however they want to make it, how, make, whatever they want to make it mean and however they want to interpret it. And we live in a different cultural situation, so let's, let's change it and let's reinterpret it. And that's basically what's been happening for the last hundred years in our culture is we've drifted away from authorial intent. Now, you may ask, well, what is the harm there? Well, if it doesn't matter, I'm going to show you how everything is ultimately theological and doctrinal. If it doesn't matter what the author intended... But what matters is how you want to interpret it. Then let's apply that principle of hermeneutics to Scripture. Now what you're saying is it doesn't matter what the human or the divine author of Scripture intended. What matters is how it hits me. And this is the question you hear in so many Sunday school classes. They sit around and nobody really teaches. This is one of my private little areas of complaint is... Most churches now, the pastor is viewed as the CEO, and he's the manager. And they redefine shepherd not in terms of feeding, which is what we saw last week, is the essence, the essential meaning of pastoring is to feed the sheep. And you feed that which nourishes them, and that is doctrine. We saw that last week. But the pastor is the man who supposedly went to seminary, was educated in theology and in the Bible, and he gives a little sermonette for Christianettes that lasts about 15 or 20 minutes on Sunday morning. And it's mostly singing and everybody goes away thinking, oh, wasn't it good to have been there this morning? And they feel good. And they go to Sunday school classes and some layperson who usually doesn't have a thimble full of knowledge of Scripture because he's a slave to his denominational literature, Sunday school material or whatever it is. And he says, okay, let's all sit down and... Miss so-and-so, what do you think this passage means? Of course, that person doesn't have a clue until right then what the passage is. No study. And they just say, oh, I think it means, th- it means this to me. And the next person, then he turns to the next person and says, well, what does this passage mean to you? And this is done in some of the most conservative churches and denominations today, and they don't realize that by their very methodology, they are undercutting the authority of Scripture. Because, frankly, it doesn't matter what it means to you. And it doesn't matter what it means to me. What matters is what it meant to the author, both the divine and the human author, and what they were intending to communicate to us, because that provides the framework for application and understanding. First, we have to decide what it 
the text meant, what the author was trying to communicate. You see, if it's just what it means to me, and if that's our principle of interpretation, then I challenge you and I challenge everyone who has adopted that, that philosophy of interpretation to utilize that on April 15th. But no one will because it doesn't matter what those rules and regulations mean to me. It matters what the IRS says they mean, even if that may change from time to time. But we won't get into that. We're in a passage that is going to give us some insight into the problem of majority rule. Because the majority here are concerned with certain, a certain political agenda. And we saw last time in the first uh, 13 verses the wonderful episode of the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus demonstrates that He is God and is Yahweh. He, as Yahweh in the Old Testament, fed the Jews and kept them alive and nourished them physically, symbolic of the fact that God alone has the right to feed us and He does feed us and nourish us spiritually. Jesus shows that just as God fed the Israelites in the wilderness, the manna from heaven, so it is necessary for man to feed spiritually on the truth of God's Word, and that must be the priority. So Jesus, we saw the last time, by comparing the synoptic Gospels, where Mark told us that he taught, when he looked out upon the masses, he taught them. First he fed them spiritually, he taught them. And then he fed them physically. They wanted miracles. They were out there for the show. They wanted to see the, were there for entertainment. They wanted the dog and pony show. And after he fed them, I want you to notice what their response was in verse 14. Now that they've seen him, boy, isn't this a trick? We don't know how he did it because his back was turned to us in the process, but the word has gradually spread among the crowd that, that all he had to begin with was five loaves and two sardines. Two little bitty fish. Maybe an anchovy. I like anchovies better. They have a good taste to them. I know some people don't like that, but I think everything's better with a little anchovy. So they had a couple of little anchovies and bread, and uh, they think that's pretty great. And if this guy can do this, he can feed our stomachs. He can put, you know, a couple of cars in every garage and a chicken in every pot. This guy's going to be a great political leader. So let's, uh, let's see if we can make him king. Verse 14, when therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Now that term prophet goes all the way back to a prophecy in Deuteronomy where Moses said a greater prophet will come. And so the term prophet is a technical term for the Messiah. Now are, they, is there, are these people putting the priority on Jesus as Messiah? Or are they just looking to someone who will take care of their physical needs? Well, to understand all the background here, we need to remind ourselves that the setting is Passover, that these folks are all headed down to Jerusalem. This is our, our map here. Jerusalem is down here just to the northwest of the Dead Sea. And this episode takes place a little bit north of Tiberias, up here on the Sea of Galilee in this northern area. Here's a blow-up of that map. The Sea of Galilee, Capernaum was where Jesus and some of the disciples made their homes. Down here on the southwestern shores, Tiberias. And it was up in these hills north of Tiberias that the feeding of the 5,000, the 5,000 men, there were about 12,000 
to 15,000 when you include men, women and children in with it. And he fed them there. And they're all on their way down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, the, it's important to realize why the Passover is mentioned here. Because the Passover reminds us of the Exodus. And the Exodus is the politically defining event in the Old Testament for the nation Israel. For it was there that they were freed politically from the domination and slavery in Egypt. So the Exodus and the Passover all speak of biblical freedom. Now what we see in the biblical concept of freedom is something different from what has happened in modern human history. Because when you see and do a comparison of historically, we don't mean a a freedom, a revolution for freedom like the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 or the French Revolution of the 18th century. In fact, those are vastly different revolutions from what took place in America, and there was a tremendous philosophical shift which took place at that time, right after the American War for Independence. And I believe my study of the American War for Independence that if that had taken place, ten, if another ten years were to go by it would not have been the same. There was a small window of opportunity there because of the way people thought philosophically about law and about life and about economics, that if it hadn't taken place at that particular window of opportunity, then we would have had this terrible, terrible uh, consequences here that they had in France. What they realized was that freedom had to have a spiritual root. You see, we have to, if we're going to understand freedom, we have to understand the source of slavery. And the scripture says that the ultimate source of slavery is sin. That because of Adam's sin, we are all born into slavery. And there is evil and suffering and all uh, establishment institutions will suffer a certain amount of decay because they're controlled by people who are slaves to sin. So if we're going to truly understand freedom and we're going to truly appreciate freedom, it has to start with understanding the nature of the spiritual aspects and not just political aspects. And that's why, truly, since the American War for Independence, and you look around at the geopolitical scenario from the French Revolution, which had its roots in in raw humanism and was antagonistic to biblical Christianity, the Bolshevik Revolution, which is antagonistic to God and, and, and uh, biblical Christianity, and many other revolutions that have taken place, whether you're talking about Central America, Mexico, South America, they don't have an honest biblical understanding of who man is, man's relationship to God, and what the basis for that is. But in America, in the United States, in the colonies, prior to the American Revolution, the War for Independence, there was the first Great Awakening. And this provided a, t- a tremendous number. Tens of thousands of people became believers and pursued a study and knowledge of the Word of God in that intervening period from about 1745 up to the beginning of the uh, American War for Independence. And that gave them a spiritual capacity to understand freedom so that when it came, they could exercise it and it did not become destructive. In other countries, what we see is when you get away from the biblical absolutes, it destroys capacity for freedom, and they redefine freedom. Freedom becomes uh, security. They emphasize equality 
That was the cry of the French Revolution, was equality. But freedom and equality are antithetical in many ways. Because where true freedom exists, there will be inequality. Because some people will use their freedom to succeed, and others will abuse their freedom and fail. And the Exodus generation did not have capacity for freedom. They did not understand the spiritual issues, and all they ever looked at was God providing their physical needs. And when they got bored with, when they got hungry, they cried out to God, let's go back to Egypt, you've forgotten about us. And then God provided the miracle with the, with the manna. And then, on top of that, they got bored with his provision. They wanted meat, so he provided quail. And rather than focusing on God, who could provide all these things for them, they cried out and said, we just want to go back to Egypt because they had good food and nice seasonings, and we want to go back to the leeks and garlics of, uh, of Egypt. They had no capacity for freedom. They confused security with freedom. And I had the opportunity several years ago to go over to Belarus, which was part of the former Soviet Republic, and I realized then in talking with the people there, they had no concept of, they had freedom, but it was destroying them because they had no capacity for it. They wanted security. They wanted to know they were getting X number of dollars every week or rubles or whatever, and when they got their money and it deteriorated, they didn't understand why, and they thought freedom was terrible because they had less money, and they didn't understand issues of personal responsibility and going out and working, and and that's why the whole system over there is continuing to collapse as they were given freedom, but they wanted simply security. And if you want freedom, you cannot have security. And if you want security, you cannot have freedom. They are mutually exclusive. Because to the degree that you give people freedom to fail, or freedom to succeed, you have to give them freedom to fail. And we don't want to give people freedom to fail. We want to provide this, this social security net for people so that if they fail, they're still going to land in the net and they'll all be taken care of and they won't, the, the, the degree of failure is limited. And to the degree we limit failure, to that degree you limit the opportunity for success. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Well, when the children of Israel left Egypt and they got out into, into the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8.3 says, that He humbled you. God had to teach them grace orientation and dependence upon Him and in order to develop capacity to appreciate their freedom. He humbled you and let you be hungry. And He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you understand. See, all of that was designed to teach a spiritual principle. And here's the principle. Man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, our priority is to take care of the physical needs first, and then we'll take care of the spiritual needs. And God says you've got it completely backwards. You take care of the spiritual needs, and I'll take care of your physical needs. That was the point that Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Put the spiritual priority first, and God takes care of the physical. And man, in order to understand freedom and appreciate freedom and develop capacity for life, must put his focus not on the physical bread that nourishes the body, but on the spiritual bread, the Word of God, which nourishes the soul. For it is only through a consistent, regular, almost daily intake of the Word of God, and I mean much more than we can get simply by reading the Word, I think that's important, 
think that ought to be a part of everybody's daily schedule is at some level reading the Word because it reminds us, puts our focus back on, on the God who wrote it. But we need more than that. We need detailed instruction from the Word of God, not just a little spiritual fast food every now and then. Now, the parallel with the Exodus event and what's taking place here is that in the Old Testament, the people wanted freedom. They wanted freedom from Egypt. And there was Yahweh who presented himself as the king of Israel. And he is the one who gave them freedom, but on the basis of atonement, on the basis of redemption. There was a cost involved, and and that cost was exemplified through the sacrifice of the lamb without spot or blemish. Then... Yahweh, that is based on the tetragrammaton. Tetra means four grammaton letters. The tetragrammaton in Hebrew looks like this. Uh, usually it's written Y-H-W-H. We know that that should be a, a vowel there because of certain words like, like Elijah. That final J-A-H is uh, indicative of the name of, of God probably a soft E here, Yahweh. So Yahweh is the personal name of God. And Yahweh was going to provide freedom for them, and He taught them freedom and taught them capacity, and they rejected it. The Exodus generation rejected it, and so they stayed out in the wilderness, and they never entered the land. Now, in the New Testament parallel in this passage, the people want freedom. They want freedom from Rome. There's Jesus who they're looking to to provide freedom. And Jesus does the same thing that Yahweh did in the Old Testament, and that is He provides bread for them. He provides physical nourishment for them. But as Jesus feeds the people in order to teach them that they must be totally and absolutely dependent upon Him, remember He's teaching to them the same identical lesson that Yahweh is teaching the Jews in the Old Testament. The importance of dependence upon Him the importance of grace orientation, He is also, by virtue of providing bread for them, is making the same claim to kingship. In fact, He's identifying Himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is a little subtle for some people, but it's clearly there, and the Jews understood it. But the people rejected. Just as the Jews in the Old Testament rejected God, and His provision in the wilderness, so the Jews of Jesus' generation, for the most part, rejected Him and His claim to be the Messiah. And verse 15 tells us that Jesus, therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, see, they forgot that the cross had to come before the crown. They forgot that the Messiah had to suffer before the Messiah could reign. They forgot that the spiritual needs had to be satisfied before the physical needs. That they had to understand spiritual freedom before they could understand and appreciate political freedom. And so they had an agenda. And Jesus did not fit their agenda. And and unfortunately, this is so often the case in the Christian church. That people come to church and they have all kinds of agendas. But they do not have an agenda of putting doctrine first and being there in order to have their thinking renovated. They come in order to make friends. They come for fellowship, not understanding that when the Scriptures talk about fellowship, it primarily means fellowship with God, not fellowship with man. They come for fellowship. 
They come to make business contacts in some churches. That's the thing. We want to know who the movers and shakers in our community are, so we'll go to First Baptist Presbyterian Church, and uh, there we'll meet all the movers and shakers in town and all the key businessmen, and we'll have our contacts made, and then we'll be successful. People have all kinds of agendas. They want a little approbation. They want the pastor to hold their hand, pat them on the back, make them feel special and important. Sometimes they come because they want to work their way up the chain of command, be a deacon in the church so that they can have a little authority over people and they're operating on power lust. But there, many people are there for many different reasons, many different purposes, and they're always run counter to the agenda that Jesus has. And when that happens, and when Jesus starts teaching them what his agenda is and what theirs ought to be, they're no longer interested. So Jesus, therefore, perceiving. Here's our verb in the Greek, nous. It's an aorist active participle from the verb gnosko, meaning to come to know, to recognize, to perceive, to be familiar with. And here we are reminded of a theme that John the Apostle introduced back in John 2 where he writes, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. That is the group of those who had believed in him. They were believers, just as there are many believers in this crowd. Jesus was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. You see, Jesus knows that many, many believers, because they're immature, because they've never learned any doctrine, because they don't know the word, they're just saved, they're barely saved, they're... They have new life. They have spiritual life. They're in the royal family of God, but they don't know what that entails. And so they're there with their agenda, and it's not until God has some time to teach them and deal with them that their agenda changes. So Jesus is not going to entrust himself to a bunch of baby believers who don't know enough to come in out of the rain and want him to do just the opposite of what he is there to do. So we are told that when Jesus perceived what they wanted and what their agenda was. He withdraws again to the mountain to be alone by himself. Their agenda is 180 degrees opposite of his. And I want you to notice that just a little side point here is that popularity and mass attraction and the opinion of the masses and the opinion of the majority is not only not the key to the truth, but they are often wrong. For the majority here wanted the wrong thing. The mass numbers of people, large numbers of people here, had no clue as to his agenda, and they all wanted the wrong thing. So not only is the majority not an arbiter of truth, they don't know the truth, and the majority can often be wrong because they are operating from their own autonomy. The crowd wants freedom from Rome, not freedom to obey God. Jesus is offering them freedom to obey God. Matthew, in the parallel, gives us uh, the this, this series of events here a little more specifically. Let me read that to you. It says, And immediately Jesus constrained His disciples to get into a ship. He's breaking up the crowd. He sends His disciples off. You guys go back, get in your boat, and head across the Sea of Galilee. And then he turns around and he sends the multitude away. This is a big question. Here Jesus is at the height of his popularity and he sends everybody away. Why? Jesus realizes the issue isn't numbers. The issue is quality, not quantity. 
The issue is those who want the truth, not a lot of numbers just to make him feel better. He sends the multitude away. And when he sent the multitude away, went up into the mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. So night falls. The disciples, I'm setting you up for the rest of the story here, are going out onto the sea to head across. It's about 14 miles across. And Jesus sent his disciples into the ship, and then he goes up and waits till nightfall. Well, this is an era before they had lights, before they had electricity and battery packs in the boat to give them light. So the disciples are now halfway across the Sea of Galilee, or less than that, and they have no lights. It's dark. Everything is black around them. They have no navigational aids, maybe a little flicker here and there from the coast, but it's three or four miles away and candlelight and firelight doesn't carry very far. And then Matthew says in Matthew 14:24, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea. That is, it's halfway across the Sea of Galilee. Let's put our map back up here. They've left here and they're headed across and they've gone about three and a half miles or so tossed with waves, and the wind was contrary. That means the wind is blowing against them. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I've been in a small canoe where I've tried to go across Lake Buchanan in Texas, which is a little bit smaller than this. I was about 14 years old, and we had three-foot waves breaking over the bow, and it took us hours to go across that lake. I've made it in as little as 30 minutes, but it took us about four hours that night. The same kind of thing happens here. Of course, they're in a little larger ship. But the wind's against them, the, wind, the waves are against them. And then in Matthew 14:25 it says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking in the sea. Now, the fourth watch of the night is about three o'clock in the morning. The Jews divided their night into three watches, according to the Roman division. And so at three hours to each watch, the fourth watch begins, if you start at 6 p.m., then the fourth watch would begin about 3 o'clock in the morning. So according to John 6:19, it says, when they had rowed out about three or four miles. So in nine hours, they've made it about three or four miles. Now, normally in a canoe... My frame of reference, I love canoeing. I've spent years doing whitewater canoeing and been on all kinds of places around the country. In a canoe, you can usually, on flat water, make about three to four miles an hour. So they've gone three miles in nine hours. They're not making much progress, folks. It's three o'clock in the morning. They are exhausted. They're worn out. The Sea of Galilee is notorious for terrible storms. They come up very quickly. Huge waves. They're fighting the waves. They're scared to death. It's their life, and they know that the longer they're out there, the harder it is for them to ever uh, get to the other side of the shore. Now, let's look at John 5, uh, 6, 17. And after getting into the boat, they, the disciples, started to cross the sea to Capernaum, And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. Now, stop a minute. Let's think about what's been going on. Jesus has performed this miracle. They know who he is. They know he's the Son of God. They've heard him teach. 
They know he just fed the 5,000. They know his power. Now, you would think that having had that empirical evidence of his power, and you spent now two years at least with him watching the miracles, that you would react to the situation by trusting him. There he is. He's going to calm the waters. We'll just trust the Lord. That's how we're going to handle the test. This tells us once again that the issue is never empirical data. The issue in witnessing, the issue in the spiritual life is never hard-cold facts. Facts are just never enough. People reject the facts. They reinterpret the facts. The crowd just saw him feed the 5,000 and they reject him. The issue is not, if I had only seen Jesus, if I had only heard him teach, then I could believe this. That's a smokescreen. The issue in the spiritual life is ultimately whether or not you trust Christ, trust God, and the issue is faith. It's not knowledge. It's not anti-knowledge, but the issue is not collecting the facts. The issue is learning to trust God. Now, the disciples have seen him send everybody away. Now, think about this. You're a disciple. You've given up everything you've got in order to follow Jesus. Think about Matthew. Matthew had a good, cushy job with the Roman bureaucracy, working for the Roman IRS. He's got a good 401k plan. You know, whatever he, uh, whatever he can collect in taxes after he pays off Rome, the rest is his. So he's got a pretty good job. And, and if he can uh, really stiff the people hard on taxes, then he's going to have a really good year. He's given all that up. No future. He's given up everything. Peter... John, James, all fishermen, they've given up their business in order to follow the Lord around. Wouldn't you love to listen to their conversation after Jesus has sent everybody away? Wow, why is he doing that? He's at the peak of his popularity. We can ride right in to Jerusalem and he's going to make us all rulers and he can be king. The people are with him. What's wrong with him? Have we hitched our wagon to the wrong mule here? Are we following? Is it really legitimate? So you can imagine the doubt that they have, questioning whether he is indeed the king that they think he is. And so Jesus is going to demonstrate privately to them that he is the king who they are looking for. Hold your place here and turn with me to Psalm 29. See, to understand so much of what goes on in the work of Jesus, you must understand some things about the Old Testament. John writes the Gospel in order to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. So he is proving that Jesus is showing that He is the Messiah. Now in Psalm 29 we read that this is a Psalm of David. And it begins, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. And we have seen that the concept of name in the ancient world, both Old and New Testament, reflects the essence of someone or something. It relates to their character. So when it says ascribe, and this is part of praise and worship, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His essence. What we learn from this is that we glorify God, we glorify His essence, by responding to His essence and His character. That tells us that in order to worship God, we need to know something about His character and His essence. And the more we learn about His attributes, His character and His essence, the, the better we can worship Him. And then look at verse 3. This is where it applies to our passage. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Think of what's happening in John 6 now. The storm. 
The waves are up. It's nighttime, and Jesus is walking on the waters. The voice of Yahweh is upon the waters. When you see LORD in all caps in your Bible, that reflects the Hebrew Yahweh. The voice of Yahweh is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over, Yahweh is over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is majestic. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yes, Yahweh breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. In other words, it's asserting his sovereignty over the nations. The voice of Yahweh hews out flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare in his temples. Everything says glory. And then notice verse 10. Yahweh sat as king at the flood. Yes, Yahweh sits as king forever. Yahweh will give strength to his people. The, uh, Yahweh will bless his people with peace. Now let's go back and look, use that as a backdrop for understanding what Jesus is doing in John 6. Especially that last verse. The Lord, or Yahweh, will bless his people with peace. When Jesus appears to them, He says to them, and the English is just terribly, terribly translated. Verse 20, He says, It is I, do not be afraid. Now, this is why it's so important to know Greek. That's a terrible translation, it is I. In the Greek we have this phrase, Ego, me." Ego is the first person singular, I. A me is the verb to be. I am. Yahweh is the tetragrammaton, the four sacred letters, YHWH, which is derived from the Hebrew verb, Hayah, which means to be. What does Yahweh mean? I am that I am, the self-existent one. So when Jesus looks at them, and they look at Him out there walking on the water, Jesus does not say, it is I. Jesus says, I am. Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be Yahweh who is over the thunder and the storm, and who rides upon the waves. By saying what He says, He is claiming to be all that Psalm 29 predicts and states of Messiah. He said to them, I am. Do not be afraid. Now the liberal critics always say that there must have been a sandbar here or something like that. But they're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, three and a half, four miles out. And there is no wind. I mean, no sandbar. He is demonstrating that He is the Lord of nature. He has power over all the problems of life. Now, let's flesh this out a little bit because John doesn't tell us much more. He says in verse 21, they were willing therefore to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's turn over to Matthew 14. We're going to see a couple of additional insights before we wrap up here to flesh it out a little bit. Matthew 14, verse 24 says, But the boat was already many 
stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Middle of the night, they're scared to death. And when the disciples saw him walking, they were frightened, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. In other words, he's pointing them to the problem-solving devices. Faith, rest, drill. You have adversity in your life, look to God. He's in control. Faith, rest, drill is mixing the promises of, of the Word with faith in God. Trusting the promises, trusting doctrine. He says, focus on who I am. Focus on my character. One of the most important things you can do is to learn the essence box. The sovereignty of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the love of God. Know what that means. And when you hit life's problems, you stop and you say, okay, how does the justice of God apply? How does the omnipotence of God apply? How does the omniscience of God apply? Well, God's known about this trouble from eternity past. No matter what it is, how horrendous it is, God knew about it billions and billions of years ago. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. That means God is able to solve this problem. God loves me, so God provided a way to solve this problem. God is able to solve any problem we have in life, and He's given us His Word to teach us how. So we get an illustration of this and what happens next. Peter catches the point, and he says, Lord, if it is You, command me to come to You on the water. Peter's making a bet here. Who's more powerful, Jesus or the wind? And he's betting on Jesus. He's slowly getting the point that Jesus is more powerful than the creature. He is the Creator. If He is who He claims to be, then I can trust Him exclusively. If Jesus is who He claims to be, then I must make sure that I know Him better than I know anything else or anyone else in life. Because if Jesus is who He claims to be, there's no problem, there's no difficulty, there's no heartache in life that He can't solve. So Peter says, command me and I will come. Verse 29, and Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. Boy, what might that have been like? And he came toward Jesus. Focuses on the Lord like we do, and then all of a sudden out of the corner of the eye, maybe he heard the wind howl a little bit, and he saw this wave coming, 10, 12 foot wave, And he looks over at that wave and immediately his attention is distracted from the absolute power of the Lord of the universe and he focuses on the trouble. And he immediately starts to go down and he loses his faith and Jesus rebukes him. Verse 30, But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, grabbed him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Reminds us of what James says in James 1, 7 and 8, but the one who asks in faith without doubting, this one will get the answer, but the one who doubts is like the wind being tossed to and fro, totally unstable in all their ways. Jesus points out right there that not only does Peter lack faith, but Peter's the only one who got out of the boat. There's an implication here that the rest of you guys should have been out here. We could have had a good soccer game running around on top of the lake out here but you lack faith. And then Peter and Jesus got into the boat and he stopped the wind and at that point they realized who he is 
And they affirm their faith and they worship him saying, you are certainly God's son. Now, Mark has an interesting twist on this. In Mark 6, he says, and he, Jesus, got into the boat with him. Mark, incidentally, most people agree, was Peter's amanuensis. Now, that's a fancy term for secretary. He took dictation from Peter. Peter told him the story because Peter, certain things in Mark that only Peter would know. But Mark doesn't mention Peter's failure on the water. All we learn is that when Jesus got in the boat with them in Mark 6.51 and the wind stopped and they were greatly astonished. And then Mark draws the following conclusion. They were astonished. Think about that. Mark 6.52 says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves for their heart was hardened. Think about that. Now, if the disciples were in the presence of the Lord Jesus day in and day out, and they saw miracles, and they heard Him teach doctrine day in and day out, and they saw Him walk on the water, and they couldn't handle life's adversities through the application of doctrine, and in fact their heart was hardened, how much more so do we need to dedicate our lives to learning God's Word? I'm always amazed when I think about the fact that all of us fall victim to thinking that somehow we can grow to spiritual maturity by just paying lip service to God and His Word and showing up on occasion, going to church on occasion, opening God's Word on occasion. We've all gone through that stage in our spiritual life. And yet the Scripture says that we are to radically transform the very core of our thinking. That does not happen unless we make it the priority of our soul. That we are to feed on God's Word. And that is to be more important to us than our jobs, than our careers, than feeding the family, than anything else. We are not to put aside those responsibilities. But in order of priority, we are to rearrange our lives in such a way that it reflects the fact that the most important thing in our lives is to have our thinking shaped by the Word of God because that prepares us for eternity. And do we want to be like the person in 1 Corinthians 3 when at the judgment seat of Christ all is burned up, yet they enter heaven yet as through fire. They have no capacity. I believe there are going to be Christians who end up in heaven and look around and say, where am I? They will have no capacity for understanding where they are and who God is. Because God is not going to give us omniscience or dump on us a complete knowledge of Scripture at the moment of death. We're going to enter into heaven with whatever doctrine we have in our soul. That's how we enter heaven. Now, that doesn't mean we're not glorified, don't have a resurrection body. doesn't mean that there won't be uh, a solution to sorrow and tears and pain, etc., and that all will be put behind. But what it does mean is that our eternal destiny and our place in heaven and our responsibilities are going to be determined by our response to the bread of heaven while we are here in this life. So the issue is, the same question I asked last week that Jesus asked the crowd, is why are you really here? What are you looking to Jesus to provide? And how consistently are you looking to Jesus to provide it? 
So next week we'll come back and look and begin to look at what is called the Bread of Life Discourse, where Jesus emphasizes these things even more. And we'll come to that verse in verse 27, which emphasizes the whole chapter. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which is endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, because it is, as the psalmist said, a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. That as the psalmist wrote, in Thy light we see light. And it is only through the illumination of the absolute truth of Your Word that we understand how to think and respond to every category of life and every arena of thought. And Father, we realize how much our thinking needs to be renovated by Your Word and how little time we have. There is so much to learn, so much to change, and so little time to do it in. Father, we pray that You would help us to see the priority that Scripture must take in our lives, that this is not just to be a hobby, but it is to be the driving force, a passion for us, that we want, we hunger for, we thirst for, and as Peter says, we desire hungrily the sincere milk of the Word because it is from that that we grow. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is without hope and without faith, without eternal life, without an understanding of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain. All that is necessary is for them to put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of religion. It's not a matter of ritual. It is simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. Pray that we will continually be nourished by it this week as the Holy Spirit brings it to our memory, that we may meditate on it and may apply these things in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.